<laughs> That's right. Well, against all odds, today's sermon is about waiting. <laughs> so, count on the Lord to provide your own illustrations for you. It's a good, it's a good thing. So it is true, we're in Advent, this is our second, uh, our second service where we're remembering Advent, it's technically the third Sunday in Advent if you're following those kind of calendar things. And Advent is a season of waiting. Um, if you are a certain age, it means waiting while presents pile up under a tree and maybe like shaking them in the corner and wondering what's inside them and thinking, can my parents keep a puppy in this box? Can they do it? Would I hear it? Would it scratch? Uh, there's intense waiting. There's waiting, to, um, there's waiting for lots of things. And of course, the chief waiting for the season of Advent is that we're waiting in memory of the birth of Christ. So the fullness of creation comes together when God becomes part of it at the birth of Jesus. All of creation waited in expectation for the moment this child was born. And so we remember that waiting. We come alongside it, and it becomes part of our waiting as well. But it's also training because we're not out of the waiting yet. We're still waiting for Christ to return. So there's something about the Christmas season that, that ties into how we think about the world and how we approach it all the time um, as we look forward to what God's doing. And in the interim, we get to think about all the things we're still waiting for, for God to do, like justice. Aren't we waiting for justice? How about peace? Looking forward, goodwill among men. That's a great phrase used in the Christmas story. We're longing for these things. We're waiting. And so we have these times. And and, and that, therefore, is a fantastic time to think about waiting. And I'm going to be honest, we're not very good at it. I was in Aldi yesterday. You know the Aldi line where you wait? And the voice comes on automated like, attention customers. A service person will be in aisle number two. And everyone shuffles over and then you wait, right? And while you're waiting, the people in the other line go through. And then the guy comes up and you're like, I could have just waited in the other line. It's the law of the universe, right? That whatever line you're in is slower than the line next to you. Some of you are waiting for marks. You're waiting for your impatient, your graders and your tutors to go through your material and respond to you with glowing love. <laughs> and you just, you can't wait to see what they had to say about you. Some of you are waiting on the NHS, which still... <laughs> Hang on, NHS is great, but it uses snail mail, which means that if you want a test done or something, you have to wait for something to arrive in the mail. You'd think that email would be easier, but no, no, you must go through the post. Some of, you are, you're in the, some of you are in the midst of exams, and you know that period of waiting just before an exam begins? You're done, you're studying, and you've shown up, and you've got 10 minutes to go, and your pencil's sharp, or your pen's there, and you just, what do you do in those 10 minutes? I mean, you think, like, if I think anything, my brain's going to leak, and I've got to hold on to all this stuff. You know, so you just try to close your eyes, but you fall asleep, and so you have to, you know, what do you do? You, it's a tough period of waiting. And of course, we're all waiting for a Brexit deal. Um, <laughs> we have become culturally extremely adept at filling our time with just meaningless stuff. Uh, and I'll just observe uh, that we have powerful technology to help us do that, don't we? And so we fill every waking moment. We fritter time on our phones. We listen to music that will drown our silences. Um, we browse a marketplace of artificial needs to keep ourselves from feeling what? Loneliness? Fear? Anxiety? 
Uh, maybe some of us are attempting to drown out the still, small voice of God. Because if we're quiet, he might speak. And then we have to do something. We're very good at filling our time. And because I think we're so rubbish at waiting, I want to talk to you today about how to wait. And to get a grip on this, we're going to look at the words of David from Psalm 40 to see how he helps us learn to wait. So we're going to put Psalm 40 up. I'm going to read through this now, and then we're going to go back and talk about this psalm together. So David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out from the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the, turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come at the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointment altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Um, about, I think it's been about 20 years ago now, I began to have a conviction about the Psalms. I felt like as I read Christian biography and as I read the story of the saints, the Psalms figured prominently in each of their lives. And I thought, well, if this is a book all of them like, I probably should be reading it too. And so I began to dig into the Psalms, and I've spent about 20 years now soaking in the Psalms, and I have a confession to make. They're confusing. <laughs> so if you've had a hard time going into the Psalms, don't be bothered by that. They can be difficult. Um, they're obscure. There's something about them that doesn't reward a quick read. You can't just read a verse of a psalm and say, ah, I got it. You have to sit with it more. You do have to soak. Um, and I found that the more that you soak in their brine, the more your mind begins to adjust to a kind of psalmic temperament. It does change you, and it does form you, and things begin to unlock for you in the text. Now, one of the things you can learn to look for is that many of the psalms tell a story, like this one, for example. And David begins his prayer in the first couple of verses, Phil's going to put them up for us, uh, rejoicing that he waited on God and that God heard his prayer and that God has rescued him. Past tense, I've waited, God's rescued, and this is all past tense stuff. And this sets us up to expect in the rest of the psalm the unveiling of the story of David's rescue, but that's not what we get. Instead, we get David ruminating on God's deeds. He reflects on um, 
his own responsibility. He praises God, and then he frames another prayer in the closing verses. And this time, he prays for more rescue. And so the psalm ends, into my mind, really startlingly with the words, Oh my God, do not delay. And I find the past tense of the first verses and the present tense of the last verses to be confusing. Verse 1, I've been rescued, I'm glad. Verse 17, oh God, don't delay to rescue me. And so David shifts from waiting, having waited, into waiting. And I actually think this is what the psalm is about. I think Psalm 40 is framing our circumstances of waiting. It's something teaching us how to wait. So in our time together this morning, I want to break the psalm into five parts to describe five ways that David shows us how to wait. And we'll look at those now. So the first way is that Psalm 40 offers us a lesson in recollection. Let's look again at verses 4 and 5. Recollection with the word in your head. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell, them, tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So many, O Lord, are the wonders that you have done. David here recollects. He calls to memory God's works. And so while he's waiting, one of the things he's doing is recalling the memory of those deeds. Now let's talk about memory for a minute because in my experience, most people do not actively practice memory. They don't practice remembering things as like a faculty of their mind that needs development. Memory is haphazard for most of us. It comes willy-nilly to the subject as a response to various stimuli. So you walk down the street and you smell a perfume and it reminds you of an ex-girlfriend. <gasps> her! I haven't thought of her in forever, Right? pops into your head. Uh, you see a picture on a wall and you think, oh, I had a holiday there once. You don't recall the holiday. The picture triggers the holiday for you. You hear a song and you remember, oh, I remember the first time I heard this song. I was in this room with this person doing this thing. And so memory comes from outside stimulus and it pops into our heads. In this sense, memory isn't active for most of us. It's passive. Memory is something that happens to you, not something that you are in control of. Now, David's waiting involves memory, but it's not haphazard memory. Here he has in mind recollection. And the idea is that while we wait, we actively summon to mind the memory of God's deeds, of God's character, of God's mighty works. And so we have moments. I think we actually have three sources of this kind of memory as Christians. The first source, broadly, is to call, recall the stories from Scripture. We can recall the mighty deeds of God as recorded for us in the Bible. And so we can remember the creation event, the exodus, God's provision in the wilderness. We can think about the signs performed by Elijah and Elisha. We can remember the mighty deeds of Jesus. We can look to the cross, the resurrection. We can recall the events of the early church and the writings of Paul, Peter, James, and John. Those are places where we can look for recollection to say, this is where God's been faithful, his mighty deeds recorded for us. That's one area. Second, we can look to the history of the church. And God's faithfulness to individual people who, like you, have inherited this foundation and built their lives on it. And now you can look back and say, wow, your life is pretty cool too. And I'm just going to list a bunch of names for you. You've got Polycarp and Augustine, Gregory the Great and Teresa of Avila, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Simone Weil. We can recall the stories of God's faithfulness documented by John Wimber. Yay! And George Mueller. If you've not heard of George Mueller, you've got to go learn about George Mueller. Brother Andrew and Corey Tenboom. Now, if any of those names are strange to you, come talk to me later and write them down. They're people you want to know, and if you believe in Jesus, they're people one day you will know. And this is part of it. We get to be part of a story that's old, and there's great heroes in it. We can recollect their moments. But third, we have our own stories to recollect because God's done things in our lives. And you should be able to look back and say, remember how God was faithful to me in that experience? And you can recollect those moments. 
So uh, this week, actually, tomorrow, Lisa and I are moving. And if any of you are bored and want some exercise, talk to me later. Um, <clears throat> uh, we're moving, and in 15 years of marriage, this is the seventh time we're moving, which is a lot. You'd think we'd be better at it, but we're not. <laughs> we're not. Uh, one of the things that Lisa and I have ex- discovered is that the Lord has been active in leading us in every single home we've lived in. We can recount a story of God's providence hand, providing hand in every time we've moved. I'm going to tell a couple of them right now. Uh, we're a young couple, we're engaged to be married, and we're looking for our first home to live in. And we both visited a house in my hometown. Um, it was a little more money than we wanted to pay, but it was kind of old and quirky and fun. We thought, this could be really great. And we left it and we thought, this, this might really work. We could like this place. So that night I went to sleep and I had a nightmare about this house. It was really strange. I don't remember the nightmare. I just remember waking up feeling like, you know, you feel oily after a nightmare, like, oh, you just try, can't, the whole day you have to kind of shake it. And I called up Lisa and said, Lisa, it's so strange. I had a nightmare about this house. And she said, so did I. <laughs> and we said, whoa, maybe God's telling us we shouldn't take that house. And so we put it on the back burner. And about two days, three days later, we found another place. It was $300 cheaper per month. It was just out of town. Little fun little attic unit, a place, and it was perfect for us. We realized, wow, God moved us a little bit in where we were supposed to go. It was great fun. So I could tell seven more stories. I'll just tell two more. Um, when we were, we were, imagine us now, um, we're living in Western Canada. Uh, we're in a lovely, we're a lovely house. I'm a pastor. I've got a stable job. We're about to move to Scotland. And we've packed up nine suitcases, and we've packed up boxes that will ship after us, and we're going on an epic 30-day journey across North America, landing in Florida. We don't have visas, we don't have plane tickets, and at some point we're arriving in Scotland where we don't have a place to live. So, we are in limbo, the definition of limbo. And she's And she's pregnant. <laughs> So, all these factors being considered, (laughs) (laughs) there's more to say. Our visas arrive in the mail, and we we pull the trigger on plane tickets because we found some that are a good deal, and we have a date to leave, and we still don't have a place to live in Scotland. And we've got some friends who we haven't met them yet. Um, We haven't met them yet. They're friends. They say, you can stay in our house for a little while. We think, great. And so we're going to show up and stay in their house, all seven of us. No, no, seven of us. How many of us? Five. Thank you. (laughs) Seven houses, five Rioses, 15 years of marriage. Yeah, right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so (laughs) run away. And um, we fly. And the day before we flew, I found a, we found a place on Gumtree and said, well, maybe this would work. And I sent them an email and said, we're going to arrive tomorrow. Can we come check it out? And they said, yes. And so we landed. We got our way to this place. We visited this one house, and it was great for us. And we said, well, this seems about right. And we have had a strong sense of the Lord saying, this is the place you're supposed to go. So it was one day before we left, we found a place to live. That was pretty cool. And then about six months, not six months ago, three months ago, uh, Liesl had a sleepless night, and when I woke in the morning, she said, we're moving. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Um, 
too many bodies and too small a space uh, for our living arrangements. So we started to scout, and we do all we, we scout every moving site, all these things. And uh, uh, we found a place just out of town that Liesl loved, but I didn't. And we found a place in town that I thought was cool, but Liesl said, no way. Um, and then after that happened, the Lord nudged Liesl. He said, Liesl, send a message to Michelle. Liesl's like, oh, I guess so. So she sent a message to Michelle, and Michelle said, hey, we're moving. You want our flat? And we went to visit it, and we just signed the lease this past week on that. Now, I can go on and on and on about God's faithfulness. I can tell you seven stories of God's faithfulness in our moves. I can recount seven of them, and not just moving. That's not our recollection of God's, for, uh, God's provisions for us. That's not our recollection of how God's led us and done other things in our lives. We can go on and on. And the more we talk about God's wondrous deeds, the more God does wondrous deeds to recall our minds. So, when I actively reflect, uh, rec- recollect the faithfulness of God, I can personally testify to the wonders he have done, he's done. And I bet you have some too. And if you don't have any yet, you can start looking at the wonders here. If you don't have those, you can read the stories of people in the church. And if you don't have those, you can talk to your neighbor and say, what's God done in your life? And you can recollect together what God's doing. So it's the first thing we can do while we wait. We can recollect active memory, not passive memory. So second thing is that Psalm 40 offers us a lesson in attention. Number one is a recollection. Second is attention. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. These are probably the most opaque verses in the entire psalm, and that's okay. But I want to focus in on this phrase, Sacrificing meal offerings you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Uh, How is it phrased here? Uh, You've given me an open ear. Something God's done. Now, David, by having an open ear, is a kind of listening attention. He's paying attention to what God's doing, and he's looking at the promises of God to see what's what's my obligation in this. Um, And the other is a kind of obedience. He's going to obey God because God has written in the promises. He has things he's supposed to do. Uh, Now, attention here, I'm saying, is a business of listening obedience. What, in the stillness of our waiting, is God asking of me? What things in the silences we, we create actively am I allowing God to recall for me? Now, there's two things going on here. Waiting has both an active and a passive part. Actively, I can recall God's mighty deeds. Passively, I can let God recall things for me. That means I'm listening to His voice. It's astonishing to me how many people forget that prayer is a two-way conversation. I speak to God, offering my requests, but God also speaks to me and urges me towards obedience. And sometimes I fear that our preoccupation with noise, with filling every minute with a sound, a screen, with other people, I wonder if this preoccupation really reflects a subtle desire to keep the voice of God at bay. I'm afraid of His voice. If we do, He might say something, and if He says, it may not be to our liking. You may recall areas of inadequacy, of sin, of disproportion, of things that you just don't want to do. And so we're, we're stubbornly refusing to hear him. It was several years ago now that I challenged a friend in my church to pray for more of the Spirit and to listen for more of God's voice. Um, and I like this story because it's very subtle. I asked his permission to tell this story last week, and I got to hear from him. It was great. And so... Um, he, I said, you know, here's the challenge. Spend some time in silence. Listen to the Spirit. Let the Spirit nudge you. And he's like, what? Well, I can try that. And so he's sitting one day before we go. He, he coaches football. 
And he's on his way to a, to a football, a proper football with your foot, right? He's on, his way to, um, he's on his way to a football match, and the Lord says, bring a pencil. He's like, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to bring a pencil. For, I've been coaching for 15 years, and I haven't needed another pencil. And he's like, oh, but Pastor Jeremy told me, okay, I'll take, a, I'll take the pencil with me. And so that day, he's sitting, and for whatever reason, he broke or lost his, his normal pencil, and he needed another one. And he was like, huh, I guess this stuff works. <laughs> and so he starts listening more. And the Lord nudges him again. He says, Henry, um, Henry, call your friend Kenny. He's like, Kenny? I haven't spoken to Kenny in 30 years. And so the only number, only phone, remember, we used to have phone numbers, by the way. And the only phone number that he remembers was Kenny's parents' house in another province 30 years before. And the Kenny hasn't lived there for 30 years. And so, but he remembers the number from 30 years ago. This is the kind of guy he is. So he phones up the number. And he knows, he's, the guy hasn't lived there for 30 years. And Kenny answers the phone. And Kenny says, did you call my house and my wife give you the number? He says, no, this is the only number I had. And he listened, and he heard the nudge. And he told me, I still get nudges today. Now, I like that story because it's not flashy. I like that story because sometimes we think like the big obedience is, and then I spoke to Toby, and the glory descended. Ah, right? You know, we think there's going to be like, there have to be flashy things. But God is whispering and nudging, and he's asking you to do little things. And he wants you to have little obediences to those little things. And my, my supposition is that the more you obey in those little ways, the more you're going to get some bigger ways. We have a habit of looking at people who do big things for God and thinking, man, I'd like to do big things for God. And God's been saying, hey, did you take that pencil I nudged you to take? And because you're not faithful and not practicing faithfulness in those tiny things, he's not going to give you the responsibility of the big things. And so you have to be patient with small obedience, small obedience. And we learn that while we wait and while the Lord nudges us with this active listening that we have to do. So the next time you're in line at Tesco, stop and attend. Is God asking me to do anything? You might discover an answer. Number three is that Psalm 40 offers us a lesson in praise. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And David proclaims the glad tidings. He speaks of God's faithfulness. And in this section, I think David invites us to praise the Lord. One of the things we can do while we're waiting is to talk or sing about God. Both of these things can be done alone. You can put your earbuds in and listen to some Bethel music, right? You can chill out with that. You can, you can pray quietly on your own. But both of these things are better when done in a group. And I'll talk about that group part. Because I think the group aspect of praise helps us to understand what praise is to begin with. Now, if you've ever seen something amazing, so you guys have seen some double rainbows? Have you ever seen a triple rainbow? Whoa. It's cool. There's a, some of you are thinking of the song right now, I hope. Have you seen whales cresting the ocean, the tail of a whale coming up? Or, like Lisa and I have seen, a pod of about 100 dolphins moving at once. That's cool. And you want to look at it. Have you seen a magnificent sunset or a shooting star? What's the first thing you do with a shooting star? Hey, did you see that? Did you think, was it a figment of my imagination or did I watch this with somebody else? Uh, what about a newborn baby? You look, but you look together. If you've ever seen something amazing, then you'll know that the amazement is only increased by sharing it with another person. 
Amazement becomes better when another person gets to be amazed alongside you. And if three people see something cool and the fourth one misses it, oh, do they ever feel left out. Right? It's the worst feeling in the world. I missed it. That's the true fear of missing out, right? That's the worst. And so um, I actually think our favorite phrase as a species might be, did you see that? Did you see that? It captures this wonder, this amazement, this sense of community that's implied in praise. And that, I think, is the essence of praise. Praise is to speak rightly of something amazing and to share that amazement with another person. Right? You speak rightly of something. This is exactly what, that, that's awesome. That's what awesome is. That's the definition of awesome. And then to declare it to someone else. And they say, yes, you're right. That is awesome. That is the definition of awesome. Our awesome is greater now because of this awesomeness. I'm, I'll stop talking about awesome now. When we get together as a church, what we are doing is looking together an attentive gaze at the Lord and speaking rightly about His amazingness in much the same way that we praise sunsets and sunrises, infants and cresting whales. Praise ought to be drawn from us naturally as our response, and the effect should be magnified when we're in a group. So while you wait, you've got two more options. You can sing some songs of praise to God, or you can find some Christians and pass the time by speaking His wonders aloud with one another. On another occasion, Liesl and I were in a boat in Hong Kong. We visited in 2005, and we were moving. We were, fl- we were on the boat from uh, Hong Kong Island to a place called Lama Island, and it was about an hour's boat ride. And while we were there, there was clearly a group of young people sitting on the boat, um, and they had a guitar, and they began to sing. Now we didn't understand the words, but we knew the melodies, and they were praising God. They were passing their time by singing praises to God, and they didn't know it, but they helped Liesl and I to pass the time as well because we got to join in by proxy as they worshiped in community. It's a lovely thing. So you don't know who you're going to bless when you start praising together around you. Uh, Fourth thing the Psalm 40 teaches us, it gives us a lesson in honesty. Honesty. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. And I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So David's in dire straits. He's being surrounded by a kind of evil. And I'm referring to this section as honesty because Christian waiting doesn't mean we wear rose-colored glasses about our circumstances. It doesn't mean that we close our eyes to the bad stuff that's happening around us or to us. Praise doesn't mean becoming dishonest. And thinking about God never means that we're supposed to forget whatever's going on in our lives. In fact, it doesn't mean forget. It means to contextualize. My praise of God gives shape to the circumstances. It doesn't replace my circumstances. Um, and this is, this is key. Waiting is really hard, and God knows it. God knows that waiting's hard. Waiting rooms are uncomfortable places. They're not fun. Waiting for change is very difficult and unpleasant. And something interesting to me is that waiting on the Lord when we're faced with clear evils is one thing. Like when you're waiting for an evil dictator to be overthrown, that's one thing. Because at least the kind of like the line between good and evil is clearly demarcated. Like you kind of know what to think. And you kind of know what to pray. And there's lovely imprecatory psalms for curses that you can pull to in those moments. You'd be like, oh, this is what these verses are for. And things open up for you. But I think sometimes it's worse uh, when waiting, excuse me, uh, when evil isn't a clear factor. Because then you have to introspect, which decisions are the right ones? How do I know I'm hearing God's voice and not my stomach? 
Um, how do I know I'm not overly listening to my friends when I should be listening to Scripture? How do I know I've made the right choice? And that can become a kind of tortured situation. Uncertainty can be unsettling. Uh, so two years, no, three years ago now, I applied to come here to St. Andrews. Uh, once again, I was in a stable church job. Things were in place. Um, everything, was, everything looked pretty good. We were in a nice house. Um, I had an income. That was good. And um, we, um, I had been praying for years about whether I should get a Ph.D., and there were some circumstances that came together, and they announced this new program, the Logos Institute for Analytic and Exegetical Theology. It's a mouthful. Um, and this new thing, and it looked really appealing to my gift sets and who I was and the kind of things I was looking at. So I decided to apply. In January of 2016, I rapidly pulled together... 16? Yes. 15. I don't know. It was a January three years ago. Three years ago. Six, 15. Great. <laughs> three, five, seven... 15. That's right. Six kids. Four kids. Six family members. <laughs> Don't ask me to do your taxes. Um, it's January. Um, and I pulled together my application over a two-week period, called a bunch of friends, pulled things together, double, triple-checked it, submitted it, and then began to wait. So January passed, and then February, no news. And then March came, and I got notification that I'd been deferred. Deferral means they like me, but they don't want me, right? You're nice, but we've chosen other people first, right? That's fine. Okay. So March happens. I'm still waiting. April, May, June, July, still waiting. Now, I'm thinking, if this program starts in September, I can't really leave my church job in two months. That's not fair to them. That's not fair to us. That's not fair to anybody. We can't do this kind of stuff. And it wasn't until about then that I was notified that I'd been accepted, and then we had decisions to make. Now, the point I want to make is that that waiting was extremely uncomfortable. It forced a lot of introspection. Do I really want this? Is this really right? Is this really the right choice for me? Is it the right choice for my family? Is it wise to leave income, stability, home, and relationships to move your family to Scotland? Is that the right... Well, <laughs> we can say that now, after the waiting... <laughs> Uh, but it wasn't clear at the time. And I remember sharing with one of my members, I said, I've always thought about wondering if I should get a PhD. And he said to me, this is great, he says, maybe the Lord's telling you to get a preach here, dummy. And I thought, I, he was joking, but I have to take that seriously. Like, maybe my degree is, is just stay put, Jeremy. And uh, I had to discern what that was going to be. Waiting for all of us involves honest soul searching, an examination, like waiting for a spouse. Or waiting for a new job. Or waiting for uncomfortable test results. Or waiting for change in a relationship that hasn't changed in decades. Or waiting for children. Or waiting for friendship. Or waiting for someone to notice you. None of these waitings is fun. And each of them used rightly can become a space in which we can grow in self-knowledge and in which we can build godly character. But I will not lie to you and tell you that it's fun. It is not fun, but it's good. Fifth and finally, Psalm 40 invites us to pray. Um, this is verses 13 through 17. Did I ask you to put that up for you? I didn't. I'm sorry. That's my fault. Um, it's a proper prayer. David makes his request. God, rescue me from these things. God, do not delay. It's the prayer at the end of the service. Uh, we won't read it at this point. Um, it is, of course, the fifth thing we can do while we wait. We can pray. 
Um, and I'm not going to belabor the point. Um, instead, I'm going to recommend a book. It's called Ordinary Prayer, and I'm sorry, but I wrote it. Um, and because of that, I'm not going to talk too much about it, but uh, I talk extensively about prayer, about anxiety, about how we can convert our everyday needs into opportunities to experience God in action in our lives. Um, I would give all of you a copy if I could, but I can't. And so if you're thinking about buying me a Christmas present, amazon.co.uk. <laughs> so we have these five things we can do. We can recollect, we can attend, we can praise, we can be honest about our circumstances, and we can pray. These are five activities we can perform while we wait instead of filling our time with more white noise. Now, um, in the few minutes we have left together, I'm actually going to invite us to take some time to be still before the Lord and to quiet our hearts and to listen to his dangerous but loving voice for us. Um, and I'm going to invite Tim to come up in a minute. So actually, we're gonna, we'll do this in stages. You can come on up and get yourself together. Um, there's a couple things we're going to do. So we're going to have a couple minutes in just, in, in just silence. And in fact, I'm going to invite you to, if you can, if you're willing to close your eyes, you don't have to bow your heads. Just be comfortable, right? Okay. And, um, and I'd, like you to, um, I'd like you to put your hands in some um, position on your laps. This is a little exercise. In fact, if you want to put them, um, your hands, palms down in your laps, and just take a moment's silence and um, try in your hearts to offer whatever anxieties or worries you have, over to the Lord. And when you feel like you've offered them, just turn your palms upward in your lap. You shift from, it's called hands down, hands up is the exercise. I'm going to invite Holy Spirit to work in hearts and minds right now. To niggle and worry as only he can at whatever places we cling to, whatever worries we're afraid to turn over to the Almighty One. 